Transformation Station, please join them. And for the rest of you kids, we uh, hope you'll open your Bibles with the rest of us and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, this morning. We'll be in Luke 13, 1, all the way down to Luke 14, 6. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, that'll be on page 872, by the way. So 872 of the Bibles we've provided for you there today. Let's, let's pray together and ask that God would reign in our hearts one more time as we encounter his word. Father, thank you for the privilege of knowing you. God, of all the gifts you give us, of all the blessings that you bestow on us as people, the greatest gift, the greatest blessing is knowing you. So God, we pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you this morning. And that even as we just, just sing these words, reign in us. Lord, we pray that you would reign in us by your word. That your word would be authoritative in our lives, in our hearts, and that we would submit to what we find in these words of the Bible because they are your words to us. So God, help us to hear clearly the words of Christ and help us to respond rightly to the call to live under his reign. Day by day, we pray in his name. Amen. Join the movement. These three words seem to be plastered on all kinds of causes and products these days. Have you been invited to join any movements recently? When we think about a movement, we're talking about a a cause, an, an ideology that brings people together and moves them to action. And there are all kinds of movements these days that, that we are invited to be a part of. And I think that we, just the way that God made us, we, we long to be part of movements because, of course, yes, there is usually a shared value system, a shared ideology, beliefs, that, that there is something worthy about this cause that we should pursue together. But I think there's a deeper underlying reason why we would choose to join a particular movement, and that is this, is that we all long to be part of something greater than ourselves, our, our, our small, tiny lives. We love to be part of something greater, a greater community, a greater cause that has the the potential to change the world to one degree or another. And so we we are constantly invited to join different movements in our world today. I mean, just, just, Think about a few of these. A quick search will show us this. Um, Dance USA. They invite people to join the movement to strengthen dance in America. All right, so that's an appropriate, you know, cause. We meet at Spring Step after all. This is a dance studio by, you know, normal hours of the week. So, so Dance USA, join the movement of dance in America. Uh, what about this one? This was a great one. Uh, there's a radio station in Toronto, 99.9 FM, Virgin Radio. Join the movement of Toronto's new number one hit music station. There's a movement for you, okay? Perhaps you can, you know, we're, we don't live in Toronto, maybe you can get that online and, you know, cast it in somehow to, you know, devices or internet when you're hanging out. Um, so there's a movement. What about, what about this one? Occupy Flash. Join the movement to rid the world of Flash Player plugin. <laughs> anybody, anybody for that? Does that like get annoying when you're on the internet? It's like, what? Download this, Adobe that. Join the movement. Occupy Flash. Um, here's, here's another interesting one, okay? The passionate monogamy movement. All right? So I didn't look into this too deeply, all right? I'm not you know, advocating this lock, stock, and barrel, but I mean, as Christians, you know, we're we're for monogamy and godly relationships and all the rest of that. So so there's another movement. And and then we have more perhaps serious and and weighty movements like the National uh, Multiple Sclerosis Society. So here's another cause where we can join a movement, a worthy cause. 
So what kind of movements are you a part of? Have you joined any movements recently? What would it be like to, to be a part of, of, of not just a good movement, but, but a part of the greatest movement available to man? You see, this is, this is where we're going in Luke 13. We, we are invited by Jesus to be a part, to join the greatest movement the world has ever known. To join the movement of God is to join the movement that takes everything that is good, every little slice of goodness that we could find in all of these other movements, and it fulfills them all perfectly and comprehensively, the movement of God. So Jesus is going to extend an invitation to join the movement of the kingdom through repentance and thus we can then enjoy bearing fruit for God as part of his movement. And as we work our way through chapter 13 and into the first part of chapter 14, I want to give us three ways that we can see what it looks like to be a part of the movement of God, to join his movement in the world today. And we see the, the, first, the first encouragement is this. The, to belong to the kingdom of God is to repent and believe in Christ. It's as simple as that. To belong to the kingdom is to repent and believe in Christ. Let's look at the first five verses of Luke chapter 13. Luke writes, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. If you remember in chapter 12, Jesus was teaching us about how to be ready for his return. And he says at the end of the chapter that you need to learn how to better interpret the signs of the times. He says you can interpret the weather in the sky. You see these clouds over here. You know that the rain is coming. But, but I am doing all of these signs, all of these works of God right before your very eyes, and you are missing it. And so perhaps because of these words of Christ, they, these people are trying to get better at interpreting the times. They come to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, what about this news we hear of these Galileans who appear to be killed uh, by some of Pilate's men? How do we interpret this, Jesus? What do we do with this? And this, this world that we live in, this fallen, messed up, mixed up world, how should we respond to such tragedy and human suffering? And in responding to that question, Jesus raises another situation that they could wrap their minds around. In verse 4, he says, what about the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell? Siloam was a reservoir outside of the gates of Jerusalem uh, where people would come and gather. And it seems that there was some kind of structural failure and, and the tower then falls and kills 18 people. And so Jesus is, is, is helping these people process what it means to respond to tragedy and human suffering in this world. And, and he answers the, the, the question by, at first, raising the typical conclusion to the question. He says in verse 2, do you think these were worse sinners than everyone else in Galilee? And then he provides the same kind of response in verse 4. Well, what about them? Do you think they were worse offenders than everyone else in Jerusalem? To which most Jews and most even religious leaders of the day would have answered with a resounding yes. That's exactly what we think, Jesus. 
Of course, they're, they're experiencing suffering because of their sin, as though there is this proportionate relationship to how evil we are and how much suffering we're going to experience in this life. So many people would have said, of course, Jesus, that's exactly what we think is going on here. They are suffering because they are so sinful. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, actually, no, that's not what is going on with these people who suffered, nor is it those who were killed in the tower falling in Shalom. You see, we know from reading our Bibles and even from opening our eyes and looking around us that wicked people prosper every single day. And not only that, righteous people suffer every single day. And so Jesus says, look, it's, it's not that. And by the way, conversely, there is an assumption at work here that would say the absence of tragedy must mean the favor of God shining down on our lives. This is what was going on with the Jews in large part. And Jesus says you can't make that assumption either. You can't presume upon a false sense of security because as we saw last week, we all will give an account to God for our lives one day. As a famous preacher from the last century said, there will be a payday someday. We'll all give an account for our lives. And he says that this, this tragedy, these, these, these tragedies are, are not a result of human sin. Why? Because we're all sinful. We're all on the same playing field. And so Jesus, rather than focusing on the why of tragedy, gives the proper response in light of any tragedy. I mean, we're constantly asking these questions, right? How do we respond to human suffering? In verses one through three, we have tragedy by human hands. In verses four and five, we have tragedy that are are from natural causes, a, a natural disaster of some sort. And this is the world we live in as well. The Tower of of Siloam reminds us probably of 9-11 and the World Trade Center towers that fell and killed many more than 18. And people are asking the question, why? How do we respond? What do we make? How do we make sense of this in our limited, finite minds? And a quick way to make sense of this is that we live in a world that is plagued by sin, a world that has rejected the plan of God and suffered consequences because of it to where now things are not the way that they are supposed to be. The way that God created this world in the beginning is not the world that we currently live in, but thankfully it is the world that is one day going to come and return when Jesus comes back and restores all things. And so you do have human suffering and tragedy in this world. Jesus, John 16, 33 says, in this world, you will have trouble. So he encourages us to not necessarily focus on the why of human suffering, although that is a great question to be explored, and the Bible has much more to say about that. But he encourages us to ask the more personal question, which is going to be a theme again and again and again throughout this chapter, to say, how are you going to respond to tragedy? And he does this by drawing a comparison. He says, likewise, look, it's, it's, it's not because of their sin, but I tell you, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. So, so what is Jesus doing here? He's, he's, he's drawing an analogy, a comparison to say, these people experience physical death to which they could not escape, but what would be really wise for you and the best thing for all of us is to turn to God so that we could all escape spiritual death, eternal spiritual death and separation from God. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says the word twice, perish. It refers to the tragic second death of perishing ultimately, before God forever. And so the call of Jesus is a direct and a decisive one. Repent. 
turn back to God. Now, I know that repent is not like a super popular word, right? Because, you know, people wear signs and with flames all upon their costume and the signs, and it's all about hell, fire, and brimstone, and you need to repent or you are going to burn in hell kind of message. So perhaps we need to not change the message, but change the way that we present the message so, so we can't get around the fact that repentance is the call. And maybe that makes us feel uncomfortable. What, what does the word repent mean? It just means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of heart and consequently a change of action in life. So repentance is nothing more than living our life one way contrary to God and then seeing how great God is and turning back to him to live our lives for him. That's repentance. These were the first words out of Jesus' mouth in his preaching ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is near. So you need to repent and turn to God. Daryl Bach says, only repentance will prevent the death that lasts. Have you repented before God? Have you seen that he is worthy of worship, that he made you for himself, that you have not lived for him very well? And all of the sin that's in our life, all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. No one is exempt. And yet no one is exempt from the invitation of his love to turn back to him, to experience love and forgiveness and grace. And so repentance is the way that we enter into the kingdom of God and repentance, don't miss this, is the way that we continue in the kingdom of God. So it's not just, hey, I'll repent, turn to Christ, be saved, I'm all set. It's I repent, place faith in Jesus, believe in his work, trust in his work on that first day of salvation and on the 25th day of salvation and on the 250th day of salvation and on the 2000th day of salvation and on the repent, turn to Christ, believe in Christ, experience the grace every single day that Christ longs to give us. But here's our problem. A lot of times what happens is we want to enter the kingdom, belong to the kingdom in a, in a way that is contrary to the way that God has set up and ordained. So what do, I, what do I mean by that? Well, we set up other ways. Oh, God is, you know, so understanding that, that we can kind of enter into this way and that way and I'll maybe be good enough and I'll do my own, you know, best works and I'll set up my own kind of rules and system and if I live according to that, which I'm probably not going to do anyway, then, you know, I'll enter the kingdom that way. And there were some people that we see continue, continually pop up in the Gospel of Luke who try to do this again and again and again. They're known as the Pharisees. And in verse 10, look at verse 10. It says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. We wish the story stopped right there, but it doesn't. Verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. So what is the ruler of the synagogue doing? What are the Pharisees doing all throughout the Gospel of Luke? They are adding to the rules and the laws of Christ, the expectations of Christ, and they're saying, you know what, to really be righteous, then, you know, we need to do this and not do that. And so they added to God's standard by creating their own standard so that they could attain righteousness by self-righteousness, not by the righteousness that God provides. So they said, hey, Sabbath. You can't do anything good on the Sabbath because that would be defined as work, you know what I'm saying? So, so don't do, just like, don't even, 
you know, think about going there, and what is Jesus' response? I mean, this is a rebuke, by the way. What a bold guy to rebuke Jesus right here and saying, hey, Jesus, you are working and you are wrong. And how does Jesus respond to the rebuke? Well, he responds with a rebuke to the synagogue leader. Verse 15, he says, then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Don't you love Jesus? The Sabbath was made for man, not, uh, not man for the Sabbath. So, so, so God instituted the Sabbath to be helpful to people, to, to, resp- to cause to rest and worship him. But it wasn't so that it would restrict us from worshiping God. So to heal, to do something good and positive on the Sabbath is is a way to worship God, the very God who made us. And so Jesus calls them hypocrites. This is the strongest language, language he can find. He says, you care more about animals, your oxen and your donkeys, than you do people made in the very image of God. And he says... Should not this woman be freed from her bondage to this disabling spirit? Jesus came, lived, died, rose again so that we might be set free. He he shows us how spiritual warfare, remember that begins actually in chapter one of Luke and not chapter four and doesn't you know, show up again until the end of the story. I mean, it's like all throughout the gospel of Luke, the spiritual warfare. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of Satan, 1 John 3, 8. So Jesus is, is setting people free from the bondage that Satan has them in physically, spiritually speaking. And this is so important for us to grasp. Why? Because part of the cross, Good Friday is coming, the Resurrection Sunday is coming, which we celebrate not, you know, one time of the year, but hopefully every day of the year as believers. What is the cross all about? Well, the cross is the place where Jesus won the victory over sin, Satan, and death. So this is the the Christus Victor view of the atonement, which only happens because Christ is the substitute, the mediator by which he takes our place, takes the penalty for our sin on the cross, bears our sin so that he could give us his righteousness. That is the gospel, and that is why Christ came to die. So him as our mediator, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Because he is our mediator, then we have victory over sin, Satan, and death. We have been ransomed for God. We now have this great example in Christ that we follow as he laid down his life for us. Now we are compelled to lay down our lives for others and for him. The cross is so robust. And we should celebrate it mightily during this season of the year. So Jesus comes to set people free, but the religious leaders didn't get that, and they weren't so on board with that. And we see that again in chapter 14. Verse 1, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. It was like swelling, inflammation due to excessive water in the body. It says, and behold, um, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? (laughs) We've been down this road before. Let's just cover it before we get there. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Don't you love Jesus? He he just shares the truth with people. 
And the truth either sets people free or the truth will, will repel people and cause them to cower in shame and silence. That's what happens in 13 and 14. They're ashamed because they know he's right and they have no response and they are silenced because they cannot respond to the wisdom of Christ. But this is one thing that I love about Jesus. Let's not miss the fact that Jesus twice now is dining where? He's, he's dining with religious people who are incredible sinful people. So, so this teaches us that, that Jesus always wants the conversion of men. He always wants people, no matter how much they are opposed to him, how hard they reject him, how consistently they walk contrary to his ways, he wants all people, even these religious people, these ones who continually reject him, to respond in repentance and faith to him. I love Ezekiel 18.32, that God says, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Turn and live. Nicodemus, you Pharisee, if you want to be born again, turn and live. Synagogue ruler, you can have your theology of the Sabbath corrected and you can turn and live. Synagogue, you know, rulers, Pharisees, it's available to all people. Turn and live, which is just in different words, a picture of repentance. Repentance is turning and finding life in Christ. So to belong to the kingdom is to repent and to embrace the work of Jesus Christ. Number two, to participate in the kingdom is to bear fruit in the movement of God. Let's back up to chapter 13, verse 7, and Jesus builds on what he has just done in the first verses by calling them to repent. In verse 6 it says, And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. So this would have been a common scenario in ancient Israel, just as it's a common scenario perhaps in our day. So if any of you are gardeners or you love you know, you know, the outdoors and you love to you know, cultivate fruit and vegetables in your, in your yard or garden or some plot where you can kind of do that type of thing, you would probably, like this you know, owner of, of the vineyard, come and if there is a tree, if there is a tomato plant that has not produced any tomatoes in three years, if there is an apple tree that hasn't produced any apples in three years, then you probably are having a similar response and saying, you know what, hey, once or try, didn't work out, twice, three times, okay, maybe we need to kind of, you know, reevaluate, chop it down, and plant something else in its place, and hopefully that will bear fruit. So if you are maybe a little bit like me at times, and maybe not so much like Jesus, maybe you would be a little more impulsive and impatient, and you would say, hey, chop it down. But Jesus is not... Impulsive, nor is he impatient. But he says, give it another year with the expectation that it will bear fruit. Otherwise, then it should be chopped down. And, and, and this is a picture. This fig tree is a picture of Israel who persisted in their unbelief and unrepentance and continued to fail to bear good fruit for God. And so Jesus is saying, look, your time is running short, but I will continue to be patient with you and give you space to repent and believe and bear fruit for my kingdom. And if, if this was true of unrepentant Israel, who continued in their unbelief, then the true would be, the same would be true for any of us who continue in our unbelief. 
We need to respond in repentance and faith to the work of Christ so that we might bear fruit for God. Because listen, if we never bear fruit in our lives, even if we think we're kind of in with Jesus, then we are actually showing that we were never in with him in the first place. And we will suffer great loss. So the call here is a call to bear fruit for the kingdom of God because this is the beautiful news. When, when God comes into a person's life and changes us from the inside out and gives us his spirit and makes us this new person, new creation, then we have the ability to bear beautiful fruit for God that reflects who he is in his character and his work. So people that were, you know, quite angry before become kind people. People who were greedy and, and thieves before become generous and, and, and sacrificial. People who are so prideful before that you can just see it written all over their face and the way that they walk become humble people. They put others before themselves. And we have love and joy and peace and patience and all of these beautiful things that God wants us to produce in our lives. So we need to come to Christ, seek to bear fruit for him, and give evidence that we actually belong to his kingdom. Now, what is his kingdom like? Well, we see this in verse 18 through 21. Jesus tells two very short parables that teach us something of the character of his kingdom. It says in 18, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? What a, what a great question. It is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So the, these parables give a quite simple message of what the kingdom of God is like. He's basically saying that the kingdom is moving. The kingdom is growing. And the idea is that the kingdom, though most in Israel thought that the Messiah would come and set up this, this visible, permanent, more militaristic kingdom that would show great change, radical change, Almost immediately, Jesus is saying that the kingdom is like this mustard seed, one of the tiniest seeds uh, in, in the world, and, and that, that it grows slowly until it becomes this great tree where other animals can find shelter. So, so the, the, the parables communicate, just like with the leaven and the bread, until the whole, you know, uh, the whole loaf becomes leavened. Jesus is saying the kingdom is like that. It may start small, but one day it will grow in great size and stature over time to include people from every nation and tribe on the planet. This is what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. It is a movement that is spreading over time. And the way that God spreads his kingdom, this is so important to understand, is that he spreads his kingdom one person at a time. One person who said, I don't want to be a citizen of your kingdom, then comes to understand the truth in Christ, embraces Jesus, and then they are added to the kingdom. This is why it's so fun to be a part of a church plant. John prayed for many of the church plants connected to the Redemption Hill earlier today, and we want to pray for them and support them, and we are a church plant ourselves, so we are almost two years into this thing, and it's beautiful to see a visible picture of how God builds his church one person at a time, and this is how he builds his larger kingdom. Redemption Hill, of course, is just a microscopic part of the larger kingdom of God that is moving forward. And so I would ask you, do you view our church as part of the movement of God? 
I mean, do you think about that? I mean, this is like kind of you come on Sunday, maybe you're in a community group, and it's kind of this is part of my schedule and weekly routine, but it's not a lot more than that. I don't think that's the view, by the way, of most people in Redemption Hill. But what would be beautiful is if 100% of us could say, you know what, we, we come together to glorify God by living as mission as a community transformed by the gospel, and we do all this because we are called to be a part, to belong to the kingdom of Christ and be a small part of his larger movement. So, so, so my question for you is, how are you contributing to the movement of God in and through our local church? I like what one pastor says about movement. He says this, there is no more practical index of whether a church has movement dynamics than examining whether you have a culture of sacrifice. There's there's no better index to gauge whether you have a movement culture in your church than to see if you have a culture of sacrifice. Do you get that? So, so, so we challenged 2013 vision. Hey, own the mission. This is how we're going to own the mission. This is how we're going to be about the mission. We're going to love deeply, serve intentionally, give sacrificially, spread rapidly. And we said, hey, this is for all of us because it can't just be a few people. It can't just be a few on the leadership team and a few other leaders and a few other people that really get this and own the mission. But what happens, what happens if every single one of us joined the movement and owned the mission And we start sacrificing of our time. We start sacrificing of our plans. We start sacrificing our resources for one another. We start sacrificing maybe even, okay, this one hurts, our ego. What really keeps us back from from taking these cards, all right? They're like all over the place today, all right? Uh, They're in your seat. We'll have stacks like all over back and the exits and stuff. You know, this is, this is Easter egg haunts next Saturday, Easter service, second anniversary celebration, the next two Sundays. So, so, so I mean, we have, you can take a thousand of these if you'll get rid of a thousand, okay? I mean, we, we want to get these out. But, but, but what holds us back from saying, hey, if you're interested, I would love for you to come to our church on Easter. I'll meet you before the service. We can go in together. It should be a great time. What, what, what holds us back? Well, is it that we fear man more than we fear God? In other words, we care about what people think about us more than we care about what God thinks about us. And so that's why I'm saying we need to sacrifice our ego. I need to sacrifice my ego. Pastor Tanner needs to sacrifice his ego. What will this business man or woman think of me if I, you know, will, will she not want to talk to me anymore if I, you know, come in her shop and after I've invited her to church or attempted to share the gospel? So we have opportunities. Listen, after the service, as John will share, we, we have 5,000 of these out across Medford already this week. We have 5,000 more that we can distribute. And so for, for everyone that wants to Join in on the culture of sacrifice and sacrifice a little time after church today. We're going to go and we're going to continue to blitz the city by praying for the city and these homes and these people who live in these homes. And we're going to put these on people's doors because we want them to know about the Easter egg hunts, a way for us to practically serve and love our city. And we want people to know that there is a church here who loves them and loves Jesus and they can come and worship with us the next two Sundays. Let's, let's pray for these. Like, even if you don't join us after the service, would you sacrifice some time and pray? that God would use these so that many, many people in Medford could come to, like us, participate in the kingdom of Christ, which is an indescribable privilege. So so here's the beautiful thing. When, When the kingdom is at work in us, when we belong to the kingdom, then we ourselves are changed and we grow and we bear fruit for God, but then we, as we are growing, are a part of this larger movement that is also growing and bearing fruit for God. That's the ideal. Individuals being changed a part of a larger corporate community that is also being changed and bearing fruit for God. I hope you're in. Number three, to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom is to receive the compassion of Christ. Verse 22 of chapter 
13. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he, answer, and he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. So Jesus continues to journey toward Jerusalem. Another emphatic point to say Jesus is heading toward the cross. And as he's journeying, people come up and ask very sincere and serious questions. Hey, Jesus, will, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus, in typical fashion, but perhaps unexpected to this inquisitor, says, you know what? Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of massage your question a little bit, and I'm going to do two things here. Number one, I'm going to shift from the more general and abstract to the more uh, personal and concrete by saying, hey, what about you? Will, will you enter through the narrow door? Will you be those who are on the inside? Or will, be you, be, will you be those that are numbered among those who have never been changed by my grace? And so this is a personal question. Will you enter through the narrow door of Christ? It's a personal question that I'm asking every single person right now. Have you entered the narrow door of Christ? Acts 4.12 says, and there is no salvation in no one, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So I know that, that this verse is a scandal to so many because people, again, want to get in so many different ways. And yet Jesus is saying, I am the way. If you want to find salvation, it has to come through me. And part of the reason I think that the kind of the modern view is to reject the exclusivity of, of salvation through Christ is because we don't understand our depravity. We don't understand that we have offended a holy God who has, he just cannot like sweep his holiness under the rug and say, you know what, it's all fine. You can come in any way that you want to. So he has to uphold his justice and his holiness. But the beautiful thing about God is he never sacrifices his holiness and justice at the expense of his love, grace, and mercy. So he brings them together and he does this in the cross so that anyone who would believe in Christ, look to Christ, and his finished work on the cross on our behalf can be saved and enter through the narrow door. So Jesus makes it personal. And then number two, Jesus focuses not so much on the number of those who will be saved as much as the timing of salvation. In other words, there is not a limit to the love of Christ. All are invited to receive this gift, though not all will. All are invited to. So there's no limit to God's love, but there is a limit to the time in which we all have to respond, which raises the sense of urgency in the passage. Jesus clearly says, hey, many are going to say, I'm in with you, right? And Jesus is going to say, you're not in because you give no evidence of a changed life and you did not respond with urgency. So in our conversations with people who are exploring Christianity, we want to be gracious. We want to be humble. We want to be understanding. We want to remember that we were once in their place. We want to be patient. We want to, we want to share the truth in love, but we also want to do so with urgency, right? Because 
We never know when Jesus is going to return. We never know how much time we have left on this earth. And oh, by the way, if, if salvation is such a treasure and a gift, like why would you, if, if there is a million dollars laying on the floor, like I'll walk by that for a few, few weeks, a few years, and you know, not pick that up? I mean, is that, does that make any sense? And yet salvation is incalculably more valuable than the greatest sum of money. So we share with urgency because the gift is so great and the consequences are so perilous. And yet at the same time, we must balance urgency with realism. So let me give you this quote by Michael Wilcock, who is a Lucan scholar who says this, urgency is not the same as panic. Okay, hopefully this will help you as you share the gospel with your friends. Urgency is not the same as panic. This is good. In every case, wherever one man is honestly seeking the way into the kingdom, wherever another is faithfully pointing it out, the Lord knows how long the process requires. Before time began, indeed, he had allowed quite as much of it as would ever be needed for the purpose of saving all who would ever want to be saved. So you may share with a friend who is considering following Christ, and it might not be the first time, it might not be the fifth time, it might be the 15th time, but you know what? There is a sovereign God who is over all of that, and he knows just the right timing for you sharing and them receiving for them to respond and come to faith in Christ. So share the gospel with urgency, but also share resting in his sovereignty over all things to at the right time open a person's eyes to receive the love of Christ. Now before we wrap up on these benefits, we need to realize that there is some thick irony going on in this passage. And what is that? Well, verses 28 through 30 teach us that those who think they are on the inside actually end up on the outside, while those who everyone would think should be on the outside actually end up on the inside. And this is the paradox of the kingdom of Christ. These religious people thought that because of their you know, ethnicity and their descent and their proximity to the things of God, that they would be in the kingdom of Christ forever. But Jesus says, look, you are a child of Abraham if you share the faith of Abraham, not because you share the same bloodlines of Abraham. So it doesn't matter if you have family that belong to Christ, you can't ride to heaven on their coattails. No one can say to God one day, hey, on March 24th, 2013, I heard the message of Christ. Doesn't that qualify me to get into heaven? And Jesus is gonna say, I don't know where you come from. It's a personal response. But here's the beautiful thing. The, the outsider, the outcast, the people who are on the margins of society, the most sinful people, they are invited to come from the north, south, east, west. All will come and be part of the kingdom of God and enjoy the benefits of the kingdom. And what is that? Well, Jesus says we get to recline at his table. We saw last week that he will actually come and serve us when we dine at the table of Christ in the kingdom. It's a picture of intimacy. When you belong to Christ, you participate in the benefits of belonging to God and having an intimate relationship with God. This is why God is our Father, the most perfect Father that we could ever imagine. So the benefits of the kingdom are that we enjoy the intimacy of God and we also receive the compassion of God. And we see this in the final verses of Luke 13. At that very hour, verse 31, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, you go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Jesus says, as he thinks about the city of Jerusalem, he's saying, I have my arms wide open for you to come and to find protection and to find rest and to find care and to find concern. Our God is a compassionate God. Jesus is full of compassion. If you want to know God, you just need to look at Jesus. And that's why Psalm 145 verse 8 says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The only thing that is holding people back from the compassion of Christ is themselves. That's why Jesus says, I would have brought you in under my wings, but you would not come. And so my question for you today is, have you come to Christ? Have you experienced intimacy with God? Have you received the compassion of Christ and all of these benefits that are available to the children of God? Because this is what I love about Jesus. The movement of the kingdom of God is a movement of mercy and compassion. He gives us what we do not deserve and he holds back from us that which we do deserve. And so if you're kind of there and you're wrestling, maybe you are apart from Christ and you say, man, I need to clean my life up before I come to Christ. I'm not worthy of him. Jesus says, no, 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 you just come. You don't have to get your sins together. You don't have to clean yourself up. You, you can never do that anyway. So you just come just as you are. You come and you find rest and compassion and care under my outstretched arms. And for those of us who are in Christ and we are wrestling with the same thing, perhaps you didn't even want to come to worship today because you've had such a rough week and you've sinned against God and maybe some really blatant ways. And you know what? You need to hear that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. <laughs> there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us, as Richard Sibbs once said. So Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross to die for us, as we will remember this Good Friday. Arms full of love, full of grace, full of compassion, full of forgiveness. And he still holds them out for us today to come and to receive this intimacy and care and compassion that we might walk in his ways and bear fruit for him and be a part of the kingdom of God Let's pray. So reign, God, please reign in us. Come purify our hearts. We need your touch. Come cleanse us like a flood and send us out so the world may know you reign. You reign in us. Father, would the truths of your great word and even the words of the song that we sing earlier, Lord, we ask that you would reign in us as we return to you again and again through repentance and faith. And as we seek to bear fruit for you and be a part of the movement of your kingdom, Lord, may everything be fueled by the gospel, this gospel of love, compassion, and forgiveness. Lord, I pray that people would be finding your mercy even now in returning to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.